Well, hello and welcome to the next episode of the West Connect podcast, where through the A-plus program, we help ensure that student athletes are successful on and off the field. Today, I'm excited to have an old friend of mine, a good friend of mine, Mr. Whit Harrison here. How are you today? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah, no, I appreciate your story being part of what we're trying to do here. Maybe um, for the listeners, could you just give a little bit of background on yourself, what class you were at Wesleyan? Um, we both played lacrosse together, so I'll go ahead and just put that out there. We did overlap, but maybe a little bit of background on yourself. Sure. Um, so I was born in Brooklyn, New York, born and raised there. And um, from Brooklyn, I then um, got into a school called Milton Academy, a private boarding school just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Spent my formative years there after which I was accepted to Wesleyan and studied history while I was there, while also playing uh, lacrosse with the men's lacrosse team. Yeah, and you were a goalie, um, which you know is a difficult position for any sport, but um, if you want uh, to go in a little bit more detail maybe about kind of what that journey of being a student athlete was like for you. Um, especially transitioning from from high school to college. Yeah, sure. It was um, it was definitely a fascinating journey, uh, one that I'm eternally grateful for because it led to a lot of friendships and encounters off of the field that you know, in hindsight, have become much more valuable than just that you know element of, you know, being a part of the team and being on the field and what that entails. So, you know, to that end, I think it was a bit of a mixed bag at times, the balance of, you know, the student life versus the athlete life and, you know, what those would both entail. Um, I think for myself, I was able to find a pretty good balance between the two. There was never a sense of feeling overburdened by one or the other per se, but as with anything else in life, you know, there can be speed bumps, roadblocks, things that are, you know, challenges, you know, along the way. And you, know, you kind of have to roll with the punches just like most things in life. And, um, you know, I think as far as my own personal experience, it was a lot of those bumps in the road and rough patches that helped me to realize just how strong those bonds were that I had formed with friends and teammates and even, you know, professors and mentors in that context of, you know, how do you maintain this balance of schoolwork and the athletic life and, you know, what comes with that. Yeah, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, I think we all go into it as recruits with big expectations and a lot of pride. I know that was the, the case for myself and, and I really became much more of a role player. I didn't really play at all until I was a senior. Um, so everyone's journey is a little bit different there, but I do think you know there are lessons to be drawn in terms of resiliency, grit, determination. Um, and being able to to say that you you played all four years, yeah, that's absolutely. a testament. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I was in a similar role myself where I was recruited to be on the team as a goalie, and 
just I can think back to high school and just what that whole recruitment process entailed. And, you know, so much of it has become automated and streamlined now in this modern age of technology and video and accessibility. Whereas, you know, I can think back to putting together my own recruitment tapes and being in the basement of the AV lab um, that was typically off limits unless you were, you know, a part of that group and um, just being down there and doing kind of dub recording between two VCRs to just, you know, put together these clips that I could then, you know, send a dozen, you know, VHS, VHS tapes out to different schools to, uh, you know, see if anybody might be interested. And so, you know, even just thinking back to that part of the process, it's so amazing what it took back then, not to mention the amount of support there is now for doing that type of thing, where I think back to my time doing it, and it was almost 100%, you know, initiated and, you know, seen through by myself. And um, I can still remember it clear as day, you know, going through that whole process, sending tapes out, not really hearing anything. You've got high school advisors that are saying, oh, you know, if you think you know where you'd want to go, you should consider applying early or ED2, trying to wrap my head around what that meant. I was still at a point, you know, in my senior fall going into winter where I had a good idea, but not quite sure where I wanted to land and still just really kind of waiting to hear if anyone was going to bite, you know, on my, uh, you know, recruitment tapes and my letters and whatnot. And I remember being on winter break back in Brooklyn, but frequently calling back to my dorm phone as I was a boarding student there and um, just calling back to see if there were any messages left, you know, over the days that I wasn't, you know, physically on campus. And I remember that one day when I called and had a voicemail from Coach Reba, John Reba, and, uh, you know, basically in your typical Reba-isms, if you will, you know, him in so many words saying, you know, we got your tape and we saw what we liked and we wanna see if there's a way that, you know, we can get you in. Uh, basically caveat being that I'd need to switch my application from regular admission to ED2, which, you know, for me was such a relief and a weight off of my shoulders in terms of, oh, there's a good chance that I can have this whole college thing that, you know, had been vaunted as this, you know, great intimidating, you know, process, you know, the fact that I was in theory going to be able to get it all sorted out by January or February and have that comfort of knowing, okay, I'm in the school, I'm gonna have a chance to play lacrosse for a good team and, you know, just see where things go from there. That was all just a really great relief. And I can only imagine what those pressures have become, you know, in the 20 years, you know, since I went through that process. Yeah, it, I mean, it, we, I had, I had Mead and Wheeler on here last week and they kind of went in depth about what their business looks like today versus when they first started it. And it's pretty remarkable, honestly. Yeah. yeah it's, it's bananas. I don't know if you knew this, but when Chris and Matt were first starting that up, I happened to be working for a company, which was also a startup 
that worked in a similar space. The company was called Play Pusher. I don't think they're around anymore, but I basically met this guy who had just come out of a business school at SUNY New Paltz. It's a really great business mind. And he was also a student athlete. Basically, I think he was a, I think he was a third baseman or a shortstop for the SUNY uh, baseball team. But unfortunately, he dealt with some shoulder injuries that kind of sidelined him, you know, in the later years of his time there. And I think out of that downtime, he spawned this idea of developing recruitment videos and something that, you know, would cater to this market, which at the time, you know, really was overlooked and overshadowed. And um, I met up with him in the uh, the fall of 06, just after I graduated and basically got on at the ground floor. And he and I basically developed this whole system of, you know, how do we film these games? How do we isolate plays to make the most compelling, you know, demo reel of, you know, a player, you know, just kind of highlighting, you know, their best stuff, you know, getting rid of all that filler. And, um, you know, I did that for, a couple of years and then fast forward, you know, those couple of years, it's around the time that Mead and Wheeler were starting to get off the ground and think, you know, we, at that time, you know, we were still all in, you know, much closer communication than probably now as, you know, our lives have, you know, drifted apart. But I was actually the one that did a lot of the spec designs for their first pass on all of the, uh, sports recruit stuff. I guess at the time they were actually still just lacrosse recruits because that's how they got their foot in the door. But, you know, that was something that was really cool because it was literally something that I had spent, you know, over a year of my life just developing a system that would work to highlight players in the way that I would have wanted it when I was, you know, in that process. And, you know, I think I did a few videos for them and it kind of helped give them a sense of, you know, visual style and execution that they, you know, want to go forward with. And it's been cool to see how that startup for them has evolved into so much more over these last 10 years or so, 10 plus years now, I guess. And, um, you know, I, I think to go back to the whole, you know, bonds and friendships that were forged during that time at school and being a athlete, student athlete, um, you know, that's one of those ones where, you know, once we got to the real world, I was able to help offset some of their business shortcomings at the time with my own background and experience. And, you know, I think it helped, you know, I, you know, the opportunity to be able to reach out to somebody, you know, with, you know, specific skill sets was something that I think probably helped you know, satiate, you know, an aspect of that business as they were developing. And uh, they, they've come a long way since then, but, you know, it's something that I think fondly of that, you know, I was available there to be able to help, you know, as they were trying to, you know, put these pieces together to figure out, you know, what this look would be for, you know, this product they were trying to get out there. So let's talk a little bit more about that skill set and the work that you do. I think of you as a freelance media um member, but that might just be butchering your actual title or what you do. Could you talk a little bit more about kind of what you did coming out of school? And was that something that you were always interested in? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, uh, well, to start my current title 
is um, I'm a production designer and animator at Comedy Central. And that job basically entails design and creation of graphics that actually run on the linear network. So literally, if you turn the channel on at any time of the day, you'll notice certain graphics that are overlaid over the show content itself, be it the uh, channel bug, which is just the little logo of the channel you're on, or you'll see occasional graphics that will pop up just promoting shows that are coming up and things like that. Basically, I was hired six years ago to oversee the design and production of all of those elements. And it's a part of a bigger design group where we are basically the ones that handle all of the on-air promos and commercials that you see promoting South Park, The Daily Show, and anything else that, you know, comedy is running. So that's basically what I do now. Um, but getting into all of this was a little bit of a tricky situation. Basically, in college, my vision was always that I would be a film editor. I kind of decided on that pretty firmly coming out of high school and uh, a senior project that I did with a classmate turn Wesleyan classmate, Andrew Roses. And he actually is the one that I credit a lot with actually getting me into this real notion of getting into the film business. He was always, you know, a film buff and kind of, you know, I would say bordering that, you know, cringy film geek type, if you will. But, you know, he and I known each other since since I was 14, since we were 14. And over the years, just I think a lot of that stuff that he was into and would talk about in terms of filming and writing scripts and things like that just started to rub off through osmosis. And um, you know, come my senior year of high school, I was the one editing our senior film. Not something that I had expected to be doing, but once I found myself in it, and these insane, like, you know, six, seven, eight hour marathons of just editing video, I realized that it was something that I could do every day and not resent, which I didn't necessarily know was the key to a successful career in a lot of ways. It's That's one of those, you know, things that's kind of written between the lines that you don't exactly hear as you're growing up and you're being told, you know, do your best in school so that you get good grades, that it can then lead to a great career. There's always this ambiguity about what is that great career? How do you come to that decision? And I think it's something that, you know, I think through growing up and experience, I was able to better understand, you know, from the time I was four years old, I was telling anybody that asked or wanted to hear that when I grew up, I was going to be a pediatrician. Now, why, why did I land on pediatrician? How did I land on that? I really don't remember, but I do know that by the time I got to freshman bio at Wesleyan, I realized that I wasn't as into the human anatomy and blood and guts as I probably would need to be, <laughs> to be a successful, you know, pre-med and eventually you know, medical doctor of some kind. And 
I think that was one of those first true life realizations that just because you have something set in your mind of what it's going to be um, doesn't necessarily mean that's where you're going to land at the end of the path. And uh, the senior year of high school was definitely the point where I realized, yeah, I think film and in particular editing was, you know, the path that I wanted to, uh, you know, find my way towards. So, so what did that what did that look like in terms of, you know, during school and then once you entered into the professional realm, what did your first job look like? How did you land that first gig? And I would assume in your space that people probably move around quite a bit. Um, yeah. So how have you kind of maintained that professional network to make sure that you're aware of any opportunity that might be coming up? Yeah, well, just to to jump back a little bit um, to college itself. Once I realized that the film thing was what I wanted to do, I was fortunate that Wesleyan has such a great film studies program. It took me a little bit longer to realize that's what I wanted to do and needed to do in the context of my academics. So it wasn't until my freshman spring that I took my first film course uh, the downside to all of that was I, because I wasn't fully committed at the time, I didn't really take advantage of the opportunities I had, namely getting good grades and being, you know, completely focused and in tune with, you know, what the requirements were going to be in order to progress within the major and uh, film studies major at Wesleyan is one of the more notorious in terms of grade minimums and grade averages in order to, you know, be accepted into the major because they have such a small number that they can accept relative to budgets and things that are needed to, you know, accommodate all of the students in the major. So. I kind of dropped the ball on that and took the intro courses, ended up missing, you know, the cutoff, you know, for the major by, might've been a half letter grade or something, you know, it came down to a couple papers that were, you know, C pluses instead of B minuses or B minuses instead of Bs. And yeah, it was a tough pill to swallow at the time because, you know, I basically committed that, yeah, this is the trajectory I want to take. And a film studies degree would be the best way to be the most informed that I could going into that space. Um, life had another answer to that. And um, as a result, I didn't finish as a film studies major, but I did continue to take all of the film courses that were available to me outside of the major, just as a means of maintaining some sort of connection to that background, um, you know, as it would uh, dictate my future. And um, so that's what it was in school. Uh, once I graduated, I knew that there was going to be a grind coming. I was very aware of the film industry on a macro level, just in terms of it was it's very much at the time it was anyway, things have changed a lot, but at the time it was still very much an apprenticeship agent um, agency in the sense of 
you kind of have to pay your dues. You kind of started the quote unquote mailroom and you know, you learn the business, get a sense of how things work and gradually you're provided with opportunities to show, you know, what you're capable of. And based on those opportunities, there's a chance to kind of move your way up that professional ladder. So for me, it was very much coming out of school without a film dedicated degree, knowing that I would have to show some semblance of competence in the field, but not having a degree to say, oh, here's my proof of that competence. And so basically I graduated, I bought myself and uh, what was it? What did I, buy? I think it was like the first generation MacBook Pro that they released. So I bought one of those, got myself Final Cut, some instruction books and literally just sat in my uh, converted basement apartment for that first summer and was kind of ripping down old wallpaper from my grandparents and repainting, getting the space set for myself. And then at night I would sit in front of the laptop and work, you know, a chapter a day, just learning the basics of manipulating the software. How do you create, you know, this type of edit? How do you add transitions? How do you add text? How do you add moving text? So basically all the, all the rudimentary things that you would need to know to be able to sit in front of an edit suite and be able to cre create something. And so that was the first six months or so. I was also lucky again, because of my connection to Andrew, I was able to intern with him on a project he was working on over that summer. It was actually a project for the Clinton Global Initiative. And that was in the very early years of that program and uh, what was great about that was I had the chance to actually be inside of an actual film production studio and learn a lot of the behind the scenes things of you know how do you organize footage how do you process footage how do you how do you prep elements so that the next phase in production can you know pick things up and work smoothly and um, I did that for the first few months out of school the summer of 2006 and then from there shortly after I was able to finagle an internship with this company play pusher a sports video company and a lot of it was really just applying any and everywhere I could at the time hoping you know, for a couple bites and then trying to take advantage of whatever opportunities, you know, I had at the time. And that's really about as much as you can ask for in the film industry outside of having that first degree connection to someone that'll say, oh, hey, I work at NBC. Why don't you come and work, you know, as an intern or something like that? I didn't have any of those direct opportunities, but nonetheless, some of those connections that I had already forged, you know, in years prior did help me to at least get my foot in the door a little bit experience wise. And what does that journey look like since your first kind of internship at this uh, sports video company? Um, I know you've, you've kind of moved around a little bit, but if you could kind of tell us a little bit more about the journey and how you ended up at Comedy Central. Yeah, totally. Um, it's definitely been a wacky adventure, a lot of ups and downs. It was 
very much me being willing to persevere through rejections and through my own preset goals or visions of what success would be and learning to humble myself and not take things necessarily personally when I sent out a resume, a cover letter, and I got, you know, no response or worse, you know, a rejection response. And that's, I think that's something that is natural to the industry, again, because there are so many people that work in the business and also the business has branched out into so many different forms and variations now, especially with the onset of social media and um, prosumer production. Um, so, you know, I think it was something that early on without a certain mental fortitude would have been very easy for me to um, fold and say, all right, maybe I should look somewhere else, but along the way had a lot of positive moments where I was accepted to a job or a gig, be it, you know, a short-term freelance gig or the occasional permalance job, which would, you know, be a fixed amount of like regular hours, but over a fixed duration. So I think after the first couple play pusher jobs, I got hired by an agency, um, a production placement agency that basically would place me at gigs that seemed on par with my skill set and my experience level. And again, back to the mailroom metaphor, I kind of started at the bottom, which is essentially an assistant editor and got hired to do a lot of freelance jobs, which was literally just taking a stack of tapes of whatever the content was, loading the tapes into the system. So basically taking them from tape to digital format. And, um, and then sometimes just cutting up those digital clips so that they'd be ready for an editor to go in and do fine cuts. And um, it was oftentimes thankless work, a lot of graveyard shifts. Uh, I think my first legit freelance gig was a graveyard shift where I was working like 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. And I'd literally be in the office space by myself with a couple short stacks of tapes. And I just had to sit there in real time while they loaded just to make sure that everything digitized properly. And, you know, it wasn't glamorous work. I didn't, I didn't walk into it thinking it was going to be glamorous, but also understood that in terms of time paid and dues paid to get to that next level. It was the type of job that I was going to have to take. And um, separately, when I was hired by this agency, I got a really good piece of advice from the owner of the, uh, of the agency. And basically, he brought me in for a field test, just wanted to see kind of where my skills were in terms of editing. And I remember it vividly, it was kind of over my shoulder, gave me a piece of content to just do some things with in terms of editing. And at the time I was still very much working, I guess it, it, it's similar to the way we kind of joke about our parents now when it comes to technology where we're so used to 
shortcuts and hotkeys and how to streamline things to be more efficient. As for me in this metaphor, I was the parent where I was sitting there and rather than using hotkeys and shortcuts to make these edits, I was literally like, you know, moving the mouse from one part of the screen up to file up to whatever thing I needed. And, you know, he was observing over my shoulder. And afterwards, I could see he kind of had a mixed reaction to, you know, how I performed, but basically told me in short that, you know, he knows I want to be an editor. And one day I will be today's not that day, but went on to say that it's just the way that the business works. It's like you start as an assistant editor and you're doing, you know, light edits, if that much, but it's mostly, again, this kind of sorting and organizing media for the next person up the totem pole. And he's like, you'll do that for a while. And then one day you'll be offered a job or a gig that's asking you to do the rough assemblies of these same edits. So no longer, you know, bottom of the totem pole getting the stuff in, but, you know, maybe the next leg, you know, along that, um, that process. And then you'll be doing that for a little while. And then a little after that, you'll get a job asking you, oh, can you do an edit of this or that? And before you know it, you're an editor, but just to understand and recognize that it's not an overnight thing, that it very much is putting in the time showing your ability and your value to a team, you know, at that level that you're at, and then the opportunities will come, uh, was something that stayed with me from that day. And it also gave me a little bit of solace in the times where it didn't feel like things were progressing at the speed I'd envisioned for myself. And, you know, at the end of the day, he was 100% right because, you know, I was kind of at that low level in 2006, 2007. But then by 2008, I got my first permalance gig, which was for a startup company at the time. Was, at the time, it was called Rethink Autism. They're now just rebranded, I believe, as Rethink. They were a company that basically had the idea to create a platform that allowed for ABA treatment without having to go directly through professional channels. And by that, I mean, um, basically for children on the spectrum and parents of children on the spectrum, some of the uh, learning assistant costs can be astronomical and still are. And the guys that started the company really just had an idea of, as we were again entering this, you know, age of easy access to online media and video content, you know, what if there was a way to create a curriculum that would allow a parent who couldn't necessarily afford the full-blown professional therapy and treatments to have a means of accessing some of the information and to have access to the tools that they could then facilitate some of this behavioral therapy, you know, in their kids, which as you may or may not know, is invaluable in those, um, in those formative years. And so it was essentially a means to allow families of lesser means to have access 
to the same type of care and therapy that was afforded to those, you know, with the means. And uh, that was my first gig. I applied as an assistant editor, but was hired as a motion graphics designer, which was a bit of a 90 degree turn for me. Not in a bad way though, because underneath all of this, I grew up very into art and drawing and used to love to draw. You know, I draw Ninja Turtles and Batman and Spider-Man and all that stuff as a kid and did my own comics. And so I always had this love for visual art myself well before any of the film and editing stuff, you know, came into play. And when I was hired as a motion graphics designer, I think my initial reaction was, oh man, I don't want to make graphics. I want to edit. I want to cut video. And so there was a little bit of a resistance to me at first, but in hindsight, it turned out to be the pivot that landed me where I am now at Comedy Central. I basically went from this approach of, I'm going to be an editor or bust to being offered this opportunity to work in a space that's more of a visual, well, I guess they're all visual creative um, spaces, but something that was going to be more working actively in design and crafting art and a visual aesthetic for things and had a really excellent mentor through all of that. My boss, the guy that hired me and I worked there for about two years. Again, that was my first Permalance job. So I was hired as a freelancer, but it was a full time 40 hours a week job. And, um, you know, we made a lot of videos in about a year, year and a half stretch, you know, to uh, build out this platform. And that taught me a lot. It was, um, I would say it was probably my first true full time job out of college. So by my count, that was probably about a little less than two and a half years, you know, out of school, I'd landed something that was full time that felt like, you know, it would be a means to support myself, you know, on a full time scale, as opposed to the ups and downs of the time prior, which would be freelance gigs here and there as they came up, or even, um, you know, long droughts of not having work come in and trying to uh, balance bills with get finding more work and um you know again the, the greatest part was that my parents were very understanding and welcoming for me to you know be at home as i was trying to figure all of this out and so that took a bit of the pressure off in terms of you know getting myself established so that i could you know handle things on my own but you know by the end of 2008 I had this gig, it was a great gig, met a lot of really good people. And then um, unfortunately we got let go in sort of an awkward circumstance. And by the spring of 2010, I was out of a job again. And I think that's where things really started to get tough in terms of I guess in terms of my future, what did being let go mean? Was it some sort of invalidation on what I had done before? And you know, all of those 
questions that I think, you know, we'll all ask ourselves when we come to that sort of a crossroads, you know, was it me? Was it them? Was it just business? And so from about, from about February or March of 2010 until the spring of 2011, I was in this weird limbo where I was trying to figure out, you know, what was next for me. Jobs weren't really flowing very well. I did make a couple connections that led to some freelance work over that next year. But again, it was very, it was a very stressful time in terms of, okay, is this all going to pan out eventually or what? But, you know, I continue to keep my nose to the ground and um, grinding, you know, picking up gigs where I could. And finally, in uh, the spring of 2011, I was offered a freelance job at MTV. They were basically developing a pilot for a TV show at the time. And based on another freelance job I had done shortly before, the same guy I mentioned who told me, you know, one day you're an assistant editor and then they ask you to do your own edits. And then one day you're a lead editor, kind of that whole entree, you know, two, three years later, he's um, calling me about a design job for MTV. And it was like, okay, you know, this is pretty cool. I'd worked, you know, freelance for a few production houses, TV houses over the years, but nothing that was ever going to directly translate from my creative to showing up on a TV screen. So for me, that was a big jump forward. And again, after, you know, a year of grinding, just doing kind of off the books, freelance jobs, literally just to make enough that I could, you know, keep the bills, the personal bills paid, you know, month to month. I get offered this freelance job. It was only going to be a month, but again, the um, the highlight being that it was for MTV. It felt like, oh, even if this is just a month and then I've got downtime again, this might be something that I can legitimately use as my next, you know, jump off point. Irony of that being just as I was about to sign up for that job, he called me back with another opportunity. This was for a TV show that was being developed for AMC called Story Notes. It was essentially pop-up video for movies. I don't know if you're familiar with um, pop-up video from back in the day on VH1. You know, they kind of have these little factoids and tidbits about things having to do with the uh, music videos you were watching. Uh, basically, AMC was doing the equivalent before classic movies. And so about a week before I was going to start the MTV job, I got this call saying, hey, you know, I think I think you'll be a good fit for this. Are you interested in interviewing? And I was like, yeah, definitely. And so I went in and met with the showrunner. She was super nice, down to earth, a fellow TV and movie geek like myself. So, you know, we hit it off, you know, from the beginning, basically, Instead of doing the MTV thing, I was hired to be the lead editor and designer for this new show on AMC. And I believe this all played out right as I was about to go to my five-year anniversary at Wesleyan. So it was in terms of timeline and landmarks along the way. It was something pretty kismet about, you know, basically five years departed from Wesleyan and basically landing my first legitimate, you know, TV gig. And uh, I think I was working there for about a week 
and then headed up to Wesley you know, for the uh, reunion weekend. And I just remembered feeling really good about, you know, showing up back there and being able to, you know, have something tangible that I could speak to in terms of, you know, my own work experience and, you know, what I had been able to ascertain, you know, in that time since, you know, we all went our separate ways. And um, the last piece of all of this is that I was with AMC for about three and a half years. And just before the show actually folded itself, I got a job offer from Comedy Central to be this production designer that I described earlier. And so basically, once I got that job acceptance, I left AMC and started working for Comedy Central at Viacom, and I've been there ever since. Quite the journey. A lot of hard work, a lot of resiliency, and you know, kudos to you for sticking with it. Um, we're bumping up against the hour time here, but I would love to hear maybe a little bit more. What does your day-to-day -day look like uh, with Comedy Central and what are some of the things that you really like about the job and maybe some things that, you know, aren't your, your favorite parts about the gig? Yeah. To be perfectly blunt, I loved everything about the job. And above all, I think I loved the fact that once I entered the physical space for the first day, even though I was super intimidated and very nervous to speak up. I, that's just, it's a natural part of my personality. I've never been the most outspoken person. You know, I'm not, I don't typically <laughs> try to draw attention to myself, you know, in the uh, middle of a room. But all of that aside, this recognition that I was working in a space with like-minded people enjoyed the same types of things that I liked, had this, had a similar skill set and could serve as kind of this group think tank when it came to questions of design and animation and production was such a great feeling. It really felt like home. Uh, I remember my interview, my initial interview for the job and sitting down with the art director and the VP of design. And I went into this interview nervous because it was you know, basically the highest stakes that I'd had, you know, at this point in my career and walked out of the interview felt feeling like I had known them both for years. Like it, it didn't feel like an interview at all. It felt very much just like a conversation about animation and design it certainly helped that I was, you know, to some degree, a Comedy Central fanboy. You know, I think a lot of us, you know, during the early 2000s were, you know, very much into South Park and Chappelle's show. Oh, man, I, like I still watch Chappelle's show. It's unbelievable. Oh, he's, he's, he's still brilliant to this day, man. Um, but, yeah, I think I had a leg up in terms of being familiar with the brand and the content that they were putting out there. So, you know, I was able to sit down and you know, present myself and the skills that I had and could offer to the company, but it was also in the context of real world situations. So, you know, I was able to speak to 
certain designs that they were running on air. I think at the time that I had applied, they had just done a brand refresh where basically, I don't know if you recall, but the old Comedy Central logo used to be kind of this globe with the, uh, the buildings popping out of it. And then in about 2010, they did a shift where everything just got super reduced and simplified. That's when they went to the uh, double C mark design and everything, you know, it just became a much simpler aesthetic to their approach. And I remember, you know, sitting in that conversation and that was one of the first things I called out was just how much I liked the simplicity of this new design structure that they had set up there and that, you know, it was cool to track it as a fan and, you know, see what it was up to this point and then what they had transitioned to and was kind of out of those conversations that, you know, I walked out feeling really confident in my chances of securing the job. I didn't have any context of how many people had applied or anything like that, but, you know, I just felt based on what I presented, you know, in that first interview that, you know, my chances were good. And sure enough, you know, I got word back a few weeks later and, um, you know, I've been there ever since. In terms of my day-to-day responsibilities, basically, as I alluded to earlier, I'm responsible for all of the graphics that will be overlaid on a show. Now that comprises of lower third graphics, which are promoting the show itself, but there are also network graphics, which would be the channel bug that you'll usually see in the lower left corner, but also things like the ratings for a show. So those are the little boxes that'll say TVMA or TV14 or whatever. Now all of that kind of fell under the umbrella of my responsibilities. And so I worked on graphics for all of those things and pretty much a daily demand for new graphics because, you know, new shows were always airing, new shows were always being developed. So I was the one that would often take the larger scale designs for a new show or something and figure out how to translate those into a smaller space that would still prove effective, even if somebody is watching Futurama in the background, you know, just something that could come in, not be too invasive, but still remind them that, you know, there's going to be a new South Park that night or a new Daily Show or, you know, whatever the case might be. And that's pretty much been my day to day up until about a year ago, a year and a half ago, I started getting a little bit more responsibility within the office where it went from being strictly a design and animation role to being more of a manage, managerial role, but in the context of media management and helping the different departments figure out how to find an asset that they might need or where to, you know, pull certain assets from. And that's that was one of the unique things about the company was there were these silos of teams that did different things. Like there was an off, off air team. They're the ones that handled all of the print design. So from billboards and Times Square to subway posters, you know, that's what they handled. And then there was my silo, which handled anything that would actually run on the air. And then there was a digital silo and they handled anything that would you know, be posted to any of the social media feeds, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. 
for a short time. Um, what was that one with the with the ghost face? Snapchat. Snapchat. You know, so yeah, so they you know they were you know they were expanding out into you know all of these different spaces, but my newly acquired role was basically as a liaison between all of those groups and helping to make sure that people could find the proper assets that they needed and also helping to maintain, you know, folder structure and organization so that it would be easy to go back and recall, you know, a certain file or a certain project if and when the time came. And so it's, it had been a bit of a balance of both of those roles as well as kind of overseeing some design of my own, basically handing some of the uh, simpler roles that I had in terms of design, handing those off to another designer to allow me more time to be able to really help teams, you know, make sure that they were all on the same page in terms of access to uh, files and media. And uh, that's basically what it's been, you know, up until today, um, other than you know, once the pandemic hit, remote work kind of changed a bit of how those roles played out. And um, I'm still very much one of the go-to people in terms of if you can't find a certain graphic or if you can't find a project or something, you know, people will reach out to me to kind of help facilitate that. But it's definitely all, you know, structurally very different than it was, you know, when we were all physically in the same uh, same office space together. Well, Wade, thank you for the time and the opportunity to learn more about kind of your journey uh, from lacrosse goalie to working at Comedy Central. Um, yeah, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for and having me. I, I assume if if anyone listening is interested in the space that you work in, okay for them to reach out to you and learn a little bit more about maybe how they can discover more about getting involved in the space. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to uh, take any questions or inquiries anyone might have. Um, you can contact me at whitfield.harrison at gmail.com or whitfield.harrison at comedycentral.com. And uh, yeah, I'd be happy to share any insight that I might be able to provide. Uh, if I could just end things with one last thought that I had, um, you know, in the lead up to having this conversation, I was really trying to think about that one lesson more than any other that I would have been so grateful for you know, as a, you know, rising senior or graduating senior in terms of the grand scheme of, you know, finding a career and establishing yourself and what that all entails. And I think that one lesson I would have given myself is that you're not, your career and your future life aren't defined by the pace that others have to get to those like-minded goals. And I think that was something that was a huge pressure point for me especially in the uh, fledgling years. It was a time where we were all just trying to, you know, get on our feet. We were all from so many varying backgrounds and, you know, means and opportunities that, you know, once we all enter into a space like Wesleyan, there's 
there's kind of this generalized consensus that you can think of as a conditional in some ways that's almost if you go to a great school like this and you put the time in, then you will be awarded with a great career and great opportunities. And, you know, on some levels that might be the case, but it's not a one size fits all definition of how the whole process works. And I would implore anybody, you know, that is listening to this to just understand that if you have a goal in mind and a vision for what you want to do, you should 100% go all in and do the best that you are capable of doing as you work towards that goal. But remember that life isn't always smooth. Life isn't always easy and there will be roadblocks and things that come up along your path that I would just suggest as best as you're able to not let those be deterrents for whatever that ultimate goal is for yourself. Speaking from my own experience, it took me five years to really get to a space and an opportunity that I had envisioned for myself years before. And that was not necessarily because I didn't have what it took out of school. I can tell you very flat out now, no, I didn't have what it took out of school to be in that position that I was at, you know, by 2011. But all of that said, there is a value in the journey to that point and you would be doing a disservice to yourself if you didn't accept those rough times along with the good times and the understanding that if you're focused and dedicated on a goal, regardless of what field it might be in, that nothing is going to be, typically nothing is going to be just dropped into your lap. There is a degree of time invested and dedication that it will take to get to that spot that you envision yourself in. And you know, I truly hope for all of you, despite all the pressures of the world, all of the crazy things that are happening in the world right now, just know that there is a space for you out there and there's an opportunity for you to see those goals through. It might not happen in an itemized time frame that you envision, but if you stick with it and you reach out to people in your circles that can support you along that path, more often than not, you'll be happy with the outcome. Well, on that note, thank you. This has been tremendous. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Brian. It's great to talk to you for a little bit. All right, man. Take care. All right. You too.